You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 99. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone. You have reached another Local Maximum. This is the last Local Maximum that you will reach in the 2010s. Joining me, as usual, Aaron. How you doing, Aaron? Oh, pretty good. I, I And I will not, uh, other than telling you I will not raise the issue, uh, bring up the debate of whether this is the end of the decade or if that's coming next year. Oh, yeah, yeah, I totally forgot. You know what I think? Anyone who thinks the decade ends the next year is ridiculous because they're all like, <laughs> oh, it's because there wasn't a year zero. I don't give a crap if there was a year zero or not. I consider 1 BC to be the year zero. You see what I'm saying? I, I guess that's an open question, and, and I, I I haven't studied how they do the the numbering on that. Whether whether one BC is equivalent to year zero, if there should be a year zero in between, but really it's it's minutia. Yeah, but it matters to me. Like if you say the eighties, yeah, it has to nineteen eighty eight zero is part of the eighties. Nineteen ninety is not in the eighties. I mean, maybe like culturally it is, but like you know what I mean. Uh, okay, look, it's a lot cleaner to do it this way. Yeah. All right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mathematically pure. Um, all right. So today's episode is brought to you by Manning Publishing. Get all sorts of technical books at manning.com, pod local max 19. We'll talk about it later in the program. Um, we got a few responses from the last couple of episodes, Aaron. I had one, I think it was a few episodes ago, maybe three episodes ago. I think I said something. I thought I was going to get a lot of controversial stuff on the climate change stuff, but a lot of people weighed in on my comments on sleep, and I don't even remember exactly what I said on sleep. Well, so so this was prompted by the was it the MIT study about sleep habits and how they were oh, correlated to grades? I, I, yes, was that what what initiated? Yes, it? But, yes, yes. But I can't remember the contra- the quote unquote controversial thing that you said. Well, I think a lot of people said I, I wasn't controversial. And by, by the way, I'm not getting like. We did get our first true hate mail recently about something else, but I think I think it was spam. But uh, yeah, I, I think no, the people were very nice about talk, giving giving um, their uh, opinions on on sleep, and uh, and I really appreciate it because I got to hear a lot of different perspectives. I think I said something like you know oh maybe I'm a I'm a night person or I focus better at night or something, and then people actually said well you can you know train yourself to. Um, to be different, you know, for example, you know, say someone said, oh, there are studies saying that, you know, kids shouldn't get up before 8 a.m. Maybe that's not true. Maybe they can if they just go to sleep earlier, they go to sleep earlier or, you know, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I think that um, I think some of it is wired in in terms of when you're when you can focus. I think it can change, you know, through when you age. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, a lot of people say that, you know, they they get up earlier when they're when they get older. And they, although it's not really happening to me, I, thought, I mean, I do, I do think that my grad school days of getting up very late was a function of my schedule. I just trained myself to be on a later schedule, and then when I worked, I trained to be trained myself to be on the earlier schedule. Um, unfortunately, my, maybe my time management is just so bad. I find myself up at eleven, twelve at night, and I have to get stuff done. Um, and then you know, someone mentioned, hey being able to focus in the morning and late at night are also due to there being lack of distractions. So basically it's like whenever you're, if you're a morning person, you focus early in the morning because no one's up. And if you're a night person, you focus late at night because no one's up. So I kind of see that it's very tough in New York city when there are no distractions. Um, But I feel like a difference morning tired is different from night tired. And I don't know what the science says, but um and it doesn't mean like, OK, I feel like in the morning I could do certain things uh, better, like maybe give a uh, maybe I don't know. Coding tends to be a late night thing. Maybe morning tends to be a, a presentation writing thing, possibly. I don't know. What Do you, do you have any thoughts on this? Because you are a you are someone who uh, sometimes oftentimes uh, lacks enough sleep. Am I right? Uh, th- this is this is a true fact. Uh, yeah. I, I was so never, as an expert, uh, successful at being a morning person, uh, and 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 I've tried uh, numerous uh, numerous occasions because every, every time you see a, a like a productivity guru talking about you know these these ten things uh, that that highly successful business people have in common, and invariably one of them talks about waking up early before everyone else, and whether it's you know uh, doing 
a certain certain task or certain work before you know before anything else or you know going and working out before showing up at the office before everyone else it that that's a, a recurring theme i think it's I, a good idea actually but but it, i think this gets us again to the correlation versus causation uh yeah, there there may be very many successful people who do this thing i don't think that thing is what makes them successful um but perhaps people who are more likely to who naturally are more inclined to do this type of thing are also more likely to have certain types of success yeah, so. uh, maybe that's true. I find that um, – uh, what was I thinking about this? In terms of uh, – get, I've had early morning jobs, and I find myself – I found myself getting sick a lot. Uh, I found myself um, you know, getting worn out a lot, and then I simply switched over to jobs that – and by the way, you know, these are – if they were jobs that were less mentally taxing, I'd probably be able to do it just fine. But – when they're mentally taxing, you know, programming jobs and uh, you know, uh, software development things like that, um, no, nah, it didn't. It didn't work for me, and so I sort of drift. Tend to drift towards companies that allow you to get in later, and I found much more success. So <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. But um, I mean, part of it is in New York City. You know, if you wake up at seven a.m., you're going to have a really bad time coming in on the subway. And yeah. so eight a.m. too, and nine and, and you know, maybe nine nine thirty, it starts getting a little better. Yeah, so I mean, you have to get up super early and way earlier than everyone else to get in, um, which I've done before. But it's it it's a little bit more. This is one of the reasons I want to move back to Manhattan, maybe walk to work, so I don't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah, I'd say in general, I'm I'm equally bad at uh, getting up early and going to bed at a reasonable hour, which uh, feed into each other. Although yeah. there was a brief time where I I was. Uh, I was basically clock shifted and I was working uh, uh, a 12 hour night shift, uh, but that that didn't last for more than a few weeks. How did you feel that? Did you, did it drive you crazy at all? It, it didn't particularly drive me crazy, uh, mostly because it was just me and one other guy. So there wasn't, it, it was a complete dislocation from kind of the normal work environment. Yeah. Okay. And, and I should mention, you know, if you have kids, it's sometimes more difficult to get sleep. And a lot of people bash me over the head with that and say, like, <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to say. Like, oh, you know, you shouldn't complain now because when you have kids, then you're really going to be screwed. All right, fine. But, I mean, that just makes me feel like um, well, it's going to be a disaster. If there's, if there's one thing I learned at MIT, it's that everybody likes to to wave their masochism around and, and impress upon you how they have it so much worse than you do, no matter how bad you have it. There's there's a lot of one up upmanship in terms of and, and I think I think that carries over into the oh you think you're sleep deprived. Let me tell you about my woes. That's uh, that's good to know. Yeah. People, you don't need to. Maybe kids wake you up all the time. Appreciate it that, uh, you know, you're not complaining about it all the time. That's that's uh, that's wonderful. <laughs> uh, OK, so um, before we move on to uh, to our, our main topic, uh, you've made a few meticulous predictions that are yes. coming to fruition. So tell me about those. So so uh, one of them closed in oh, so what was a surprise to me. Metaculous, uh, by the way, is the um, – oh, what episode did we do Metaculous on? Let me see if I can uh, – I, I haven't done my research. Uh, so um, let me go back into the archive. So that is um, the prediction engine, right, where you guess uh, – you know, we did it in episode 80, 85. That was with Anthony Aguirre. And um, this was his website for kind of aggregating people's expertise into a prediction engine. So you get points for getting predictions right. Whereas I'm using Predictit where I win money, very little amounts of money. <laughs> but tell me about your Metaculous predictions. Uh, yeah, so this was uh, a prediction regarding the uh, establishment of the Space Force, um, which I, I had, well, it was... It was the establishment of the Space Force uh, before the 2020 election, which yeah. uh, I I had put at, at having a uh, a very low probability. Um, so let's see. Yeah. Uh, it it resolved earlier this week on or excuse me, it resolved on Friday, the uh, the 20th of December. Uh, and it resolved uh, in the affirmative that it, it had been accomplished, which snuck up on me completely out of the blue. Wow. Uh, which, which, if you look at my predictions, is, is obvious uh, because I put it at a 2% likelihood of happening. Wow. Why did um, you put it so low? I, I was convinced that since it has to pass through the House, since the House uh, controls the purse strings, uh, 
uh, and this would require at least some sort of funding, uh, that there was no way the Democrats would give this to Trump because uh, it, it had been initially pitched very much as, oh, this is one of Trump's crazy ideas. And I, I figured that they would block it uh, up to the election because it would make a good election talking point that he wants to do this crazy thing and he's fixated on it and we're we're going to stop that. It's wasteful spending. It's it's uh, you so know, why militaristic for no reason. Uh, and not only did I get it wrong, but it, it caught me completely off guard. Uh, I, I hadn't heard anything about the, the fact that it was included in the bill that was working its way through Congress. Uh, and if I'd been following the comments on Metaculus, uh, I would have probably been keyed into this because there was some discussion uh, in, in kind of the week leading up to it. Uh, does this count? Would this count? How, yeah. how should we interpret this? And then all of a sudden... So it happened. Uh, it resolved. In fact, it resolved before it was going to close. So uh, if I'd been paying attention, I could have revised my prediction right up to the last minute, which I think is what a lot of people did because the community prediction uh, came down at 85% likely, which I'm I'm almost certain that's not uh, what it was initially. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, the all-time mean was 31% and... Uh, the recent mean bumped all the way up to 66%. All so right, so it, it happened. It basically flip-flopped uh, yeah. uh, be, o- over time. All right. And, and I completely missed that that flipping trend. Yeah. I've uh, been trying to predict the um, Democratic nominees for president. Uh, and and that's one that I think uh, was getting more coverage. So yeah. I don't know if that is, is better or not, but there's well, certainly – I'd expect more action on that. I did it on Predict It. I did a reasonably good job with – Elizabeth Warren, just by experience, like when she was on her way up, I, uh, I voted, I voted, I, um, (laughs) by, by the way, I try to approach this as not what I hope is going to happen, but by what I think is going to happen. A lot of people think, you know, just because I bet on someone positive or negatively, I want them to be the nominee or not. That's not true at all. It's, it's much like stock market investing that if your, if your objective is to make money, uh, you you may invest in some companies that you don't think are necessarily angels, but you think that they're going to be successful. Sure, sure. So um, and in this case, it doesn't help the candidate to vote them unpredicted right. in any meaningful way. Um, so I voted for Warren, uh, yes, when she was down, and then she went up and she went too high, and then I flipped to no, and then made money on the way down. And so I was so, and even though I flipped kind of way too early, I sort of think that was okay that was a good example of you, okay you're on I could the right see, side of the wave you just didn't yeah, ride I could, it all the way to the crest right so i could see i could see kind of the media um the media craziness coming and then turn it around i i noticed though that i'm not willing to i do have this problem where i have this sunken cost theory where if someone's going down i don't want to uh like i want to wait and see if they come back up whereas i wouldn't you know necessarily bet on them um, um, you, you know, I, I definitely have, I'm definitely kind of working through the kind of psychological, uh, sunk cost fallacy when doing that. So it's very yeah, interesting. I, I haven't, I haven't watched closely enough, uh, in the, in the past on, on what the markets on predicted look like in terms of, yeah. of, of how, well, Bernie, know, is, is there a dead cat bounce in, yeah. uh, in candidate, uh, Outcomes. No, not not really. Not really. It doesn't work like that because once someone is down, it's like, oh, wow, they're really not going to win. And then they quickly go to very low number um, like Kamala Harris did, uh, which I also got that one right. Um, but some of the like day trading on some of these some of these guys I got got wrong. Fortunately, I haven't touched Bernie and Biden for a while, so I didn't you know, vote them down and they've been going up. So I could have made money there. Uh, but anyway, very small amounts. I think I'm up maybe $5. So <laughs> it's all for fun because there's very little, um, you know, there's a limit to how much you could put on that thing. Yeah. And, and ostensibly the purpose of the market is by tying it to to actual financial stakes, even if they're small, uh, makes the uh, the accuracy of your predictions carry more weight. Yes, uh, yes, but some people it's, say it, it's still a very it, because they keep the amounts so small. It's not as accurate as it would be if the amounts were much larger, because you have right. a lot of people who are just messing around. And um, and and conversely, you want to keep the amount small so that people aren't uh, essentially gambling on this. That it's it's small enough that it's people aren't going to go broke and nobody's going to be making obscene amounts of money and possibly yeah. 
uh, I think there are legal reasons unintentionally influencing. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's legal constraints on it, and that's that's the justification for the legal constraints. Yeah. All it's, right, it's not supposed to be gambling; it's educational. All right, so I want to get into based. now. Uh, you know, I, I want to get into. I, I want to have a discussion because it's the last discussion of the 2010s. I want to talk. I kind of did a little personal brainstorm as to what are the biggest stories of the decade, uh, mostly in tech. Um, in technology, how are the t- how is twenty twenty different from twenty ten? And so I just writ- wrote down here a few that have come to mind. Maybe we can go over them a little bit and um, you know say a few brief sentences, a b- few brief thoughts about each one, and then maybe if people are interested, we can do a whole show on each one in the future, whichever one sounds interesting. How's that sound, Aaron? Sounds good. All right, great. So first of all, I want to mention that today's episode is brought to you by. Manning Publishing. They're the people who uh, who put out deep learning with structured data. They're the people who put out classic computer science problems in Python, classic computer science problems in Swift, um, and a whole host of technical books to learn, you know, Scala and all that. Um, and if you go to manning.com, manning.com, you can see all of their books and you could use the promo code podlocalmax19 for 40% off. Remember, deep learning with structured data will teach you how to apply powerful deep learning analysis techniques to structured data found in the relational databases that real-world businesses depend on. We talked about that with Mark Ryan in episode 87, and then more recently with David Kopeck in episode 97, which, by the way, is one of our most popular, I think it's the most popular episode to date on the first day numbers. So that was wow. a very popular episode. Yeah. Uh, David Kopeck in episode 97 talked about classic computer science problems in Python and Swift. So I guess a lot of people were into that. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a lot of Manning books in our Foursquare library at work. I just want to mention that. So it's like, you know, a, a lot of people use this. You can get them at Barnes & Noble, but get a little discount by using Pod Local Max 19 and learn all your technical frameworks and computer science and make your job skills more marketable. How does that sound, Aaron? Uh, it's enticing. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Oh, uh, I, I did give out the free promo codes and people like that. I do have a few extras. I don't want to make any promises, but I might have a few for the Swift book if people are into Swift. So let me know at, at localmaxradio@gmail.com if you're interested in that one. All right. So uh, now we're going to get into the biggest technology stories of the decade um, I was thinking of making a top 10 list, but I don't know how many I have. So why don't we just go through them? Okay, let's roll. All right. So I want to start with an article that uh, from Bloomberg, which was kind of, um, I don't know, it was a very negative article and it was very fixated on one thing, but it was called The Decade That Tech Turned Dystopian. So I thought it could be about a number of things. Um, I thought it could be about, you know, Hey, how, you know, all the intelligence agencies are spying on us, you know, the NSA spying and who's that guy, uh, Snowden, you know, that could be that's, one of them. That's where my mind went first, that yeah. this was going to be a yeah, surveillance state issue. Could be a surveillance state issue. I thought maybe it could be how, you know, on our social media, everybody, all the worst people are taking up our time and mind space and all these trolls are... You know, we're allowing trolls to get to us, and if we don't want them to get to us, then we have to spend all our time kind of block, blocking and curating people, which is another time suck. And um, and it's sort of – and another issue is like all of these apps being kind of like casino games where, you know, it's wasting all our time during the day, which is sort of an issue uh, mentioned in the, in, the, in the article, but that's not really the issue they're talking about. They're really more concerned about Cambridge Analytica. Uh, and like I said before, how big data and uh, essentially targeted advertising um, was used in an illicit way, in this case to help Trump, seems like they only worry about it when it's used to help Trump. And it ends on a positive note because they're like all these regulations, the California Consumer Privacy Act and the GDPR are on the way and they're going to rescue us from all of these bad actors. So. Yeah, I- I'm I'm not convinced that regulation is, in that form is the answer here. That's not but, a strong enough statement. But but to to give them a a, a little bit of a, a leg to stand on here before we kick it out from under them, I, I'm I'm trying to analogize this to a historical case similar to it. So a lesson by analogy here. Um, okay. So the a prior medium, uh, television. Uh, that I'm I I believe that they had issues with. Uh, 
to put it bluntly, truth in advertising uh, sure. in some of the early days. That yeah. that uh, there was a point when you could go on the air and say just about anything, and the the FCC stepped in, and on the medical side, also the FDA, uh, and and set some pretty clear rules about things you can and ca- cannot say about products. Um, you know, some of the terminology around that. Um, that they set regulations there that requires somewhat more truth in advertising uh, and and has some mechanism for going after it. And that has, to an extent, resolved that problem. And I, I think that's what people who uh, are, are looking to things like GDPR and, and the California Consumer Privacy Act to, to fix the issue, they're thinking in that mindset. Uh, yeah. And so that's come up a lot uh, in, again... Uh, you know, Facebook, for example, when he when he was before Congress, again they brought up, oh, you know, how are you gonna are you gonna fact check ads? And he basically said, you know, no, not really. So the internet is a big vast space. You can regulate certain companies, but um, as we'll talk about in a second, it's all going crypto. It's all going dark, and so <laughs> maybe they won't be able to anymore. Yeah, well, and and part of the rationale for why an agency like the FCC could do that was that. The, the airwaves over which television and radio at that time were broadcast was a public resource. Right. Otherwise, um, and I, I think there's there's been a, a strong argument that, well, the Internet is not. Um, well, or at least if you make the argument that the Internet is a public resource, then we get into a lot of uh, First Amendment public square counter arguments. Uh, and right. that that really muddies the water for what they can and can't do here. Well, the Internet, well, it's public to be sure, but in terms of, you know, is it is it a, a, a kind of a government resource, I think, is what you're getting at. And so, yeah, the Internet is just it's global. It just is. You can use certain pieces of infrastructure uh, to access it, but you don't have to use those pieces of infrastructure. So yeah. well, and and I, I don't have any research on this. This next thing I'm going to tie to it, but uh uh, this this is more of a 2019 thing than a than a uh, a, a 2010s thing, but we've seen a, yeah. a dramatic increase of countries turning off the internet. Uh, That's in in times of of, of unrest and and yeah. so that that uh, that answers the question of can they regulate it as a public resource because they can turn the tap off whether right. they should and whether it'll be tolerated uh, is going to vary dramatically depending on the the norms of of the country you're in. That's a very good point. And which countries have done that recently? Has it been China and uh, uh, India is India. is catching the most flack for it recently? Um, because I, I I was reading uh, I think it was in the uh, uh, the Tech Review uh, that that India has the record for the most times in 2019 that they've turned off the internet. Wow. Now technology can be developed that can get around these things, and so I think maybe in the 2020s that will be a uh, a big story. All yeah, right. Absolutely. It's, it's a blunt tool and uh, we're, we're learning more, more about it and how to circumvent it the more it gets utilized. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of 2010s, I think the most obvious story out there is the rise in mobile computing. Um, everybody's walking around with their phones. Everybody's walking around with a supercomputer in their pocket. Video calling available in the 2000s. We used it sometimes in the 2000s, but um, you know, with FaceTime, with iPhones, Video calling really hits mainstream, I think, early in the decade, um, and so do a lot of other applications, chat applications, SMS, etc. Oh, and, and in the second half of the decade, uh, the 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 smartwatch really became a, a viable, you know, going concern. Uh, yeah. And and so what was it? Was it Dick Tracy that had the uh, the video calls in a watch? Yeah, that, it's funny. That, we, I've done that. Yeah, it, it's. I haven't held. I think it was kind of a joke, though. I, I or was it Dick Tracy or was it um, Get Smart? Well, Get I Smart think... had the phone in a shoe. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, we still don't have the shoe phone, do we? <laughs> uh, but okay, uh, no. I, I you're right. I it is cool how some of this technology comes up. Although I wonder if he would have long conversations on the watch. And really, it's like you're only using the watch of your hands free, and you hold it up and say, oh, "I'll call you back later." Uh, but uh, yeah, no, definitely and. Wearables. I think the biggest wearables has been in the ear and on the wrist, and so you kind of see it's it's easy to forget that earbuds are a wearable, right? And so I think that oh, it's definitely becoming a wearable now with the AirPods and all that, right? Um, and I'm yeah, deve- I'm developing for it. Directly you should them. see some of the things some of the things that Bose is doing um, as well. So a lot of stuff with sound, and um, if you kind of look at uh, um. 
that I, I feel like wearables today is kind of an extension of mobile computing. Uh, but wearables in the 2020s might be kind of its own category. If we're sitting here 10 years from now, we might be thinking the, the rise of you know, wearable computing is something different from mobile computing, uh, whereas right now it just feels like an extension of it. Just like in the 2000s, mobile computing was interesting, but kind of an afterthought to what you really thought about when you were talking about Internet technology, when you were talking about computer technology. Mobile in the 2000s was very exciting. You know, we had yeah. we had the iPhone, we had the Razor, you know, we had the first SMS messages sent. But well, and, it wasn't and before the iPhone. We had the iPod, which uh, it's yeah. easy to forget that that was kind of a breakthrough. And in, in yeah, maybe maybe you wouldn't call it computing, but it was definitely a mobile device. I mean, we, what we're doing is called podcasting for a reason. I mean, that comes <laughs> from the iPod. Uh, so uh, maybe people don't realize that. But um, yeah, I think that. Uh, I think that those didn't, they weren't as practical. Maybe you could say they started to become practical maybe somewhere around 2009, 2010. And that's when we turned the corner, almost right at the beginning of the decade. Um, So that's a really good one that I think defines the decade. Another one I'm going to come up with is social media consolidation. At the beginning of the decade, remember, I think MySpace was still ahead of Facebook in 2010. I I certainly was more into Facebook the whole time. Um, yeah, I, I was never on MySpace, so I'm I'm not a good gauge for for when that that uh, that inflection point occurred. Right. Uh, so I believe it happened around the time around around the dawn of the decade. Um, uh, there's a Business Insider article that came across my desk about all of the social networks that were popular ten years ago that are no longer popular. Hey, well, Instant Messenger you can't even use anymore. MySpace, Friendster. Now, it did come across my desk because Foursquare is on it, and uh, the article did mention <laughs> that Foursquare still exists and has 50 million users, so thanks. But, um, yeah, I think they meant, you know, it's very different now. The company is focused on more enterprise business, although, you know, maybe we can change that a little bit in, in my role as we go uh, into the future at Foursquare. But, uh, yeah, n- not only well, yeah, is social media be... blossoming and consolidation is a big story for the decade. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a tech company uh, that was around at the beginning of the decade that hasn't somehow uh, pivoted uh, in into its current form. It, it may maybe less so with like a Microsoft or an IBM, uh, but but any of the the more up and coming tech companies, uh, th- they've they've pretty much all taken some form of a pivot in this decade. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. I think the next story I want to get into is cryptocurrency and cryptography. That is one, unlike the social media story, unlike the mobile computing story, those you could have seen in 2010. Cryptocurrency, not a clue. Not a clue. Well, so, so when was the, the Bitcoin white paper actually published? It was published on, let's see, October 31st. 2008, but Bitcoin didn't actually get off the ground until 2009. So right at the start of this decade, Bitcoin was finding its price. But then again, it was a project that you know a few people were collaborating on, not anything that um, had any global significance whatsoever. Well, sure, and and because it was it was published under the name of of someone that we we don't know who they are now, and we certainly didn't know who they were then. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not it's not like if if Steve Jobs had come out and announced this and all of a sudden everybody would be jumping on board. Yeah, no, it's just been it, one it kind of I've been slow cooked under the radar for a while. I've been following this field for a long time. It's just been one hate fest after another. Everyone's saying it's <laughs> it's going away. It's not useful. It's now a lot of the a lot of the uh, secondary coins. Um, the, so the, can we monetize that hate coin? Uh, a lot, yeah. It goes up every time someone says something nasty about it. But that's essentially Bitcoin. Um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of the altcoins did go away, although some altcoins have done very well. And you know, I think the whole space is very exciting. One thing I've heard about Bitcoin consistently is something else is going to come along that's better and overtake it. That's not how this stuff works. It's not like something's going to overtake the internet protocol. Because something is better than TCP/IP. No, they'll build on top of it. That's the way this is working. This is not a MySpace, Facebook type thing. I think people are making the wrong analogy there, and I've heard it again and again and again. Uh, very interesting. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to link to a thread by 
John Newberry on Twitter, who talks about all the progress that has been made uh, this decade uh, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, um, why it's gaining so much value. And he also talks about things like the Lightning Network that are going to make the transactions very fast. A lot of people kind of mistake it. I think that the, the, the mistake people make is they think it's a payments technology, which has also been very big this decade. Um, it, it's they kind of uh, think of it as a competitor to Apple Pay or, you know, the Samsung equivalent or, you know, any of those things. Yeah, I, so, think, I think, well, on the payment side, I, it feels like us, th those of us in America are playing catch up to the rest of the world on that front. Uh, that possibly because of our, our fairly effective uh, legacy system in place with, with credit card processing, that we've been really slow to adopt some of the newer, uh, newer innovations in that field. Yeah, but coming back, that's not really what Bitcoin is. It's about... A no, store yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's a uh, adjacent but but distinct field. Yeah, no, it's it's really about store of value and monetary policy. I'm telling you, monetary systems change throughout time. We kind of think, okay, the systems that we grew up with, well, the dollar, the well, look, the euro is pretty new, uh, if you think about it. And so yeah. monetary systems do change from time to time. Some of them seem very stable, but uh, you know, it's so it is even though it seems like a, a, a stodgy field. I think the idea of having a limited asset that can be uh, traded peer to peer. It's peer, it was peer to peer cash, and people are like, oh, it's not peer to peer if you know it's hard to. If, you know, it takes too long to do a transaction, that stuff will be worked out, I believe. But anyway, all of this stuff has led to. And by the way, I also want to add that even though I said, like, I wouldn't have had a clue and most people wouldn't have had a clue. There were people who predicted this sort of a thing. Sure. But if, if you if you dig deep enough, you can find somebody who predicted predicted almost anything. Well, yeah. The, I, the, the, the question is, were were enough people talking about it to. No, make, no, make serious bets but the, the people who were insiders really knew the people who were insiders in cryptography, the people who had tried this before. You know, if you looked at this in 2010, you'd see a bunch of failed experiments, e-gold, mm. all that. Um, what's the famous one with um, Milton Friedman, who kind of uh, said something in 1999 that sort of sounded like Bitcoin um, and some of these economists have. So it wasn't completely out of the blue. I mean, you know, it did take imagination to come up with it, and, but other people have had the same thoughts, but it wasn't. It, but it, I think it's as out of the blue as it gets. Um, now, a lot of this stuff has made people think more about how you can decentralize. If you could decentralize money, what else can you decentralize? You know, around 2010, there was a Facebook competitor or an attempt at a Facebook competitor called Diaspora. It was kind of a, a, a social network that was completely decentralized, lots of different servers, anyone can run one, open system, but it didn't work to kind of overtake Facebook or take any meaningful share. Um, but now uh, this is this whole idea, now that like Bitcoin has been successful, people are going to go back to these ideas and they already have. Nothing's been taken off yet, but a lot of startups and a lot of ideas have come out to say, okay, how can we decentralize something other than money? Um, and a big story I think that, that's come out that maybe we could talk more about uh, in a later episode was Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter and Square <laughs> Payments again. He wants to decentralize Twitter. I almost think, I've said, he said some things, you know, I, I almost think he looks at Twitter, I, he looks at, um, I don't think he considers it a mess, but he looks at the, he, he knows that there are messes on it. There are things that they can't fix with this centralized system. And he says, you know what, let's sort of disrupt ourselves with a decentralized system. And that's almost what it's going to take to have a decentralized social network that competes with the big one. You might not be able to compete with it from scratch, but if you have the CEO of Twitter on involved thinking, hey, I can introduce this Trojan horse and maybe it won't just disrupt Twitter. And so it's a wash for me, but it'll disrupt all the other social networks out there. Maybe it'll eat into Facebook, eat into all these other things. Um, uh, then I'm going to go for it and I'm going to win. Well, that could be how it how it happens. So I'm really going to follow that very closely. Yeah, I, I think he has some concerns about the direction that that Twitter's going, but but I wouldn't put it as far as uh... – I, I wouldn't call this his uh, his J. Robert Oppenheimer moment. I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Wait, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, I, I believe it was uh, supposedly when Oppenheimer oh. witnessed the the Trinity nuclear test. Yes, the, and, the and atomic realized the bomb. bomb was going to work. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, 
I, I think he had significantly uh, more severe second thoughts than than uh, than Jack Dorsey is. But but he can see that uh, his creation is is taken on some darker tones than perhaps he envisioned it. I mean, I, I hate to say a lot of people you know criticized him you know going on Joe Rogan for the stuff he said, but it shows that like he was listening to all these voices. And yeah, I well, think and, he's and, and he's being very careful about coming up with an idea on how he's going to do this. And I'm glad to see him doing that in the news. Maybe I'll get him on the show one day. I don't know how hard that would be. And it's it's perhaps more difficult with with these uh, creators or, or founder CEOs. But but a lot of times you have a company and something goes wrong, um, like, uh, you know, if. If if you didn't have a Zuckerberg at Facebook uh, and the Cambridge Analytica thing happened, uh, it would not be unreasonable to expect to see a CEO head roll and the board put a, put somebody in there to replace them and and you know shake things up. But you don't see that because they have so much entrenched power in in their in their companies. And I I think Jack is trying to uh, to mitigate things so that the idea of replacing him is not an attractive alternative. That that he's. To, to at least show that he's trying to do the right thing here. Okay, another one I want to get into uh, is, and this is not strictly a tech story, but I think it's related to our technology. It's, it's partially related to related to our technology, but it's a political story. It's kind of the rise of, you know, populist and extreme and third party movements and anti-establishment movements, and we see this all over the world. And this. It really did feel like, I mean, all that stuff was, was there, has been there forever, and it will be there forever, you know, but it really felt like the flavor of it changed and accelerated almost exactly around the turn of the decade. Um, and I want to do a whole show on this to kind of give, you know, where I think we are in sort of the political moment in, 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 in the United States um, as it relates to the world over the last 12, uh, over the last, you know, uh, 10 years. Um, but that's going to create a whole show. But I just want to mention, you know, the few of them that I wrote down was, you know, the, the, the Tea Party that was right in, the, in 2010, Occupy Wall Street. So I'm getting like both right and left. There was Trump. There was Black Lives Matter, Antifa. There was some rioting. Um, around the world, you saw Arab Spring, Hong Kong. You saw uh, Brexit. You know, populist leaders getting elected all over the place. Some of them with very different flavors than the others. You know, so you get nationalism on the right and socialism on the left, which is, um, you know, two kind of scary sounding ideologies. <laughs> um, and so, I think this is related to mass communication. I think this is related. I mean, it's it's that, a partially, and I'm seems... not giving this as a negative or a positive. I think this has had both positive and negative effects in the world. Um, but I do think it is partially an effect of people being able to communicate in real time, form groups, spread memes, spread, uh, spread information, spread disinformation um, at light speed. I think this is partially related to that, but also partially related to kind of the economic changes and sort of the, the social changes and generational changes. But that's got to be a big piece of it. So it it certainly seems that the the revolution in in basically communication technology played into that. Um, thinking back to when was the last period of of kind of major social upheaval uh, and and kind of uh, at, at least in the U.S. Uh, countercultural almost revolutionary activity uh, makes me think of the '60s and, and maybe early '70s. Uh, and I I can't draw a parallel to to what if 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 uh, mobile technology and the internet made this possible in the 2010s what was the analog uh back then right I, i'd have to give some more thought on it but it, it's, it raises an interesting question it is an interesting question here are my two initial thoughts i mean first i think there there was a general generational change in the 60s where uh you know the the young adults who are generally um, I mean, a lot of this stuff is led by kind of older intellectuals, but then like the young adults are kind of the ones who are so would sort these of be the boomers. Do, yes, the boomers. And they and, did not experience. Now it's the millennials playing that role. Yes. So the boomers did not ex grow up in World War Two. They grew up, you know, kind of in the 50s. Their their parents had seen World War Two, had seen the Depression. And so this was sort of a changing of the guard. But I also think in the 60s, yes, you did have. Lots of different 
you did have a, a change in communication. You had televisions. Uh, I, I don't want to make television the whole thing, but you had uh, people with cars, a lot more teens with cars, a lot more older people with cars. Yeah, I, had, I guess, yeah, television wasn't new, but all of a sudden it was much more ubiquitous. Yeah, I, I mean, they say, okay, the Vietnam War was televised and that had a much bigger impact um, than, you know, previous wars had not been televised. And I don't think all the social upheavals were due to the uh, Vietnam War, but, um, I mean, there's also, you know, the sexual res revolution, There, you know, birth control, you didn't have that before. So, uh, I mean, again, I wasn't alive during that time and neither than you, so I'm sure we'll get uh, somebody weighing in who lived through it. I could talk about 2010s and 2000s because I lived through it. Um, I could only talk about 1960s based on stuff that... Uh, that I've read and inferred. So I, if someone... Well, at some point, you're going to have to come out of your parents' basement and ask yeah. him what it was like living in the 60s. Yeah. And, and by the way, for those of you who don't know, he is making a reference to the fact that I am uh, traveling today and I'm stopping overnight at my parents and I am literally in my parents' basement. So let, let's just... Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're not giving me too hard of a time there. Um, okay. So uh, let's... Um, uh, all right. So the question is, where does this go? Uh, does it reverse or does it accelerate? If the 1960s are any, well, if any time period is any indication, it at least changes. We know that. Uh, it's not yeah, like... There, there, there will be a pendulum swing. The question is... Uh, it's not a two-dimensional. How, how, how much more will be gained and will those gains be consolidated before the pendulum swings back? Well, the pendulum is not two-dimensional, as we know. It's not like a pendulum uh, that it, goes... Yeah. It's a, it's a multi-dimensional pendulum, so it will swing one way and then it will swing back, but it won't swing back to where it was. It will swing to in an entirely third dimension. Um, so uh, per Perhaps pendulum is a, a poor analogy because usually when you're talking about a, a pendulum, you're not imparting any external force. Right. Uh, and, and these very uh, you know, technologies and, and paradigm sh shifts we're talking about uh, basically are external forces acting on that, that pendulum. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to maybe do an episode on um, at least try to explain all of the political and social changes going on as, as I see it in the U.S. in the last 10 years. I've seen a lot of narrative building, and some of it is, you know, very well-intentioned, but people who have kind of like a partisan leaning, um, which is, I mean, I'm, I have a, I have a, uh, I have an ideology as well, but I'm just saying, like you know, I come out, will come at it with a certain narrative as well. But I kind of want to go over. I, I really do think that uh, technology has had a big role to play in this, and um, I sort of think the right and the left get it wrong on on why yeah, this it's, is happening. It's easy to point, easy to paint a very hopeful picture of where this technology can take us, and it's uh, equally easy to point a very very dark picture of. Of where it's going to drive us to. Yep. So arms the race, truth, as usual, lives somewhere in between. Yeah. All right. So the next one I wanted to mention, a few real quick. The first is cloud computing. Um, that has been huge. For those of you who are, you know, software engineers in the tech industry, you obviously know that, you know, Amazon uh, clusters and Microsoft and, and Google and all these companies are kind of, you know, Amazon, <laughs> almost every mid-sized big companies now has their uh has their servers hosted by Amazon or some other big company uh and so it's sort of all in the cloud every morning when i walk into work i log into my dev box which i assume is hosted at amazon or something like that and i start <laughs> i compute and, other, and sometimes i run these jobs that make hundreds of computers do work in probably not another country probably somewhere in the us somewhere that I don't know and then it comes back to me and gives me the answer. So it's uh it's crazy to think how far that's come. For individuals, cloud computing usually means file storage and having all your information available for anywhere, you know, I'm talking about iCloud, I'm talking about Google Docs, I'm talking about Dropbox. This makes it really easy for me to do this podcast on the road, for example, because I have all of my podcast materials in my in Dropbox, I have all of my notes in Google Docs, and so I can easily just you know start uh, start recording. Um, and so, uh, do, do you remember when like it used to be? Oh, you know, every once in a while you'd lose all your stuff. You could still lose all your stuff now, but uh, it's yeah, well, very and different. There, there was a period where everyone was carrying around USB thumb drives with them everywhere uh, before the cloud existed, because yeah. that was the the best way to move stuff around, or or you emailed it to yourself. 
Yeah, I mean that is that is uh, kind of a uh, a wonky cloud if you think about it. I mean, email <laughs> is is the cloud. Um, I mean, there there was. I mean, any email client that is. You know, like if you log into Gmail, if you log into website, that's a cloud service. It's hosting it yourself. Yeah. Email doesn't have to be a cloud service, by the way. I think. Well, no, I th- I think it has to be hosted somewhere. Yeah. So you, you so, have to have a server. Yeah. Although, uh, well, yeah, not not everything with a server is a cloud. Yes. Yes. All right. Um, I, I I will say that the uh, again more of a 2019 than a than a 2010s story, but the big uh. The big surprise in the cloud computing world was that uh, Amazon did not win the Jedi contract this year. What um, is the Jedi contract? Uh, so I, I I need to find what the actual acronym is it is for it. But uh, here we go: the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Services contract. So this was a uh, ten billion ten year contract with the Department of Defense, which everyone thought Amazon was the shoe in for it, uh, and and Microsoft came in and swooped them at the last moment. Microsoft um, so, has done so very not, well. Not a, a David and Goliath story. This is this is clearly Goliath, Goliath. and Goliath beating up on each other. But <laughs> yeah. uh but but Amazon, like like you said, is kind of the the eight hundred pound gorilla in the uh in the cloud business right now, especially for, for the enterprise cloud. Imagine Microsoft positioning themselves as the little guy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um okay, so uh a few other big ones. Okay, some obvious ones. I'm going to talk about my field a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, artificial intelligence, AI, as, so, as sort of came in the popular, you know, popular vernacular, I guess. Deep learning was something that I learned in grad school in 2010 when I took Jan LeCun's class. And it was like, yeah, you know, uh, people aren't um, doing it now, but this is the, the latest and greatest thing coming out of uh, coming out of research, and now deep learning is like mainstream. I had someone write a who wrote a book on it on the show in episode eighty seven, which you can get the book at Manning dot com. Uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's crazy to see that come to fruition. Um, big data, all of that, all these crazy algorithms, machine learning, my field. That's essentially machine learning is much bigger than deep learning, and hopefully, all the stuff that you learn on local maximum that has affected you know all of the whole host of applications um and um the amount of jobs that are available i'll know because i hit the job market every once in a while uh, in machine learning is huge compared to what it was well it was pretty good in 2011 when i joined foursquare but it's nothing compared to what it was now and when i first started in the industry in 2006 it was very tough um okay another piece of that is sort of personal assistance everywhere. As you know, I worked on Marsbot. That's the one that will text you what to order whenever you walk into a, a, a cafe or a bar or a restaurant uh, and that you can talk to. But I'm talking about Siri. I'm talking about Amazon. I'm talking about Cortana. All of these personal assistants have really made it to the mainstream. Um, and, oh, did I mention Alexa, the Echo? I should have mentioned that one. That's You said Amazon. Oh, okay, yeah. So... Um, yeah, these have had a huge kind of effect on how we interact with our technology. And it's still, it's it's become just enough. It was too wonky to use 10 years ago. It's become slightly less wonky, so it's found a lot of great use cases. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years when it becomes, you know, even less wonky if more use cases open up, if they'll get us using these things more. Yeah, it's it, that's another thing where I, I think we could conceivably see some some backlash, some pulling back, um, as people realize that that they've opened themselves up so much to some of these large companies. Um, but but then again, we may decide that our uh, the convenience factor is worth so much more to us than our privacy. Right. I mean, in 2016, when we at Foursquare we came out with Marsbot, I had. There was such a wave, and I don't know how it happened. We just started working on it. We didn't know there was going to be such a wave of text chatbot excitement in 2016. I don't know. Maybe someone on the board tipped off Dennis or something. I'll have to <laughs> ask him about that. But uh, it came out, and there was so much excitement about chatbots, and that was, you know, it was a wave. Chatbots are still interesting. There'll be future chatbot waves, uh, certainly. But, um, uh, yeah, I think it's something that, Personal assistance and chatbots is something that a smaller company can use as well. 
Yeah, it doesn't require uh, the the huge infrastructure. Okay. And the final thing I want to mention was, and this is kind of, again, the beginning of the decade, but it's sort of matured towards the middle, which is the peer-to-peer apps. Uber, Lyft, Airbnb are the ones that that get mentioned the most. Um, Speaking of Lyft, in New York City, the, the city bikes have affected my life a lot because, as you know, I hate the subway. So I can, if I can get these bikes and I get more exercise and I can, like, ride around in them. So, uh, and they're all just, like, use at your convenient zip car. I had some bad experiences with the zip car, but it also allowed me to do things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Um, so some of these things, uh, I, I feel like it's kind of hit a plateau towards the end of the decade and that people don't know, you know, people tried to look for what ne- what's next. There was in the mid to late, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, where everybody was trying to position themselves. Everyone who was looking for money was trying to position themselves as we are the Uber for X. Do you remember that craze? Is, oh, absolutely. We're yeah. like the Uber for, um, pizza. I, I can't, yeah, the Uber for pizza. Exactly. And it just, um, didn't, uh, didn't pan out as 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 much as you would think. Although there could be Uber for X, but yeah. Well, the uh, the, the whole sharing economy, um, especially with oh, and I, with millennial get, angst yeah. and and uh, all the the economic uh, doom and gloom that was was forecast for how we'll never be out of debt and we'll be living in our parents' basement forever. Uh, there was a lot of why why would everyone want to own one of everything when we could all just share it yeah. uh, through these these peer to peer services and that is not taken off in the way they originally envisioned well i originally hoped that something like for a car would happen in new york and then it turns out that you know zip car is bought up by uh, an established car company and so that's not yeah, well, as convenient and and, and, and none of those were were peer-to-peer uh it really in the sense yeah. like, now there I, are I some feel, airbnb is more of that model because airbnb yeah. doesn't own any of the the rental houses right uh those are all privately owned by individuals yeah. Um, well, whereas, Uber as well. Uh, yeah, Uber to some extent, but like uh, uh, Zipcar. Oh, sure. The the company owns the vehicles, and yeah, and so it's it's not like you're going to be borrowing, you know, Steve from down the block, uh, his his car because he's not driving it today. Now I have seen some services like that, but I, it's a little it weirds me out a little bit to like drive someone for some reason <laughs> driving someone else's car is weirder to me than staying in someone else's Airbnb. Um, I don't know why. It, it, it's. Probably probably worth a whole nother show uh, to talk about why we're weirded out by some things. But uh, an, an example I, I, I heard about uh, earlier today was a, uh, a coffee shop that's trying to do away with disposable cups. And so one of the alternatives they're coming up with is uh, you can rent a, a, a cup in in the coffee shop. And what the, the, the thought of Isn't renting it called, a cup I mean, that's I... been used by someone else made me super uncomfortable. But then I realized... That's no different than when I go to a fancy restaurant and they put a glass on the table, which has been put on many other people's tables and then taken to the kitchen and washed in their dishwasher and then brought out again. But I don't know why calling it renting a glass made it feel grosser. It does. It does. Well, how's that different from when I'm in the coffee shop and I have it for here and I just have it in a cup and then I... I I think that's the idea that... Yeah. Well... They do that all the time. that, That either you could you could do a rental cup for here or you could or maybe it was you could put a deposit on it that you get back if you bring it bring it back but otherwise oh. you're basically buying the cup so it's not like I, a cup it's a cup you could walk out with yeah i i think they're i think they're rolling out a lot of different ideas and trying different things because there's there's a lot of waste they're trying to eliminate which yeah. which is a good idea but uh i i'm very curious to see how it goes yeah. but that that took us completely off topic um but but prompted by <laughs> but some of this, this sharing economy discussion. Yeah. I mean, so Uber is uh, is interesting. It's had an interesting arc this decade. It started off expanding really fast and getting into, which is smart, getting into all those cities, you know, before they had a chance to regulate. So people started getting used to them. And I feel like now, particularly in New York, the city finally came down on it and they're like, you know, city council gets together with the mayor. Hey, too many people are having too much fun. And we've got to do something about this. So they did. They limited the number of drivers and um, Ubers. I still use it all the time, but it's gotten a lot more expensive. And um, it's the fact that they passed those laws made my ex- makes my experience in the city a lot worse. I mean, think about it. It was yeah, well, yesterday's uh, ride uh, uh, uptown to a party I was going to. 
um, on Christmas Day was like $55. And to get to Grand Central, it was almost $40. It's like, it's obs- I've just was, spent almost $100. Was that almost cert- $100. holiday surge pricing or, or just that's the new normal? No, I think it's 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 the new normal. It's actually easier in the holidays because the because there's less like congestion and less, you know, less demand on these things because everyone's out of the city. So yeah. well, no, that's except new for normal. New Year's Eve. Yeah, no, but but Christmas Day the day after yeah, is is, sure. is not it's not even surge pricing. It's just normal. So things started getting cheaper and then the city decided to put an end to that. Um but they do own the roads. So there's nothing we can do about that. Uh, <laughs> Who would but, build the roads? Yeah. But now it's very interesting. I, when I was talking to um, the um, – oh, who's the, the guy from Lieberland? I should, um, I should know his name. Uh, was this the, the president? Yeah. Uh, 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 Veet. I, but, I, but I forgot his last name because it's harder for me to find. Veet Yelichka. Yeah, from, from Lieberland. I started asking him a question about infrastructure, and then I realized – you know, I essentially just asked a libertarian, um, <laughs> well, what about the roads? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, yes, I did it. I, I, I admit it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, OK, so uh, but um, so Uber in the future, what what, what is this stuff's going to do? So they lost their CEO. Like the culture there wasn't wasn't very good. And- well, yeah, I was I was going to say Uber. They, they had their one big innovation. And since then, it's been very incremental stuff. Uh, I. I'm curious to see where the the big innovation is going to come in the in the automotive uh, you know transport industry. Yeah, well they're going to uh, try and to, I'm, and I'm not convinced that self driving is going to be no. it because they haven't proven to me how the self driving car is going to save me money or time. Yeah, well, well we could we we've talked about that before, so I'm just going to move <laughs> on. <laughs> All right, uh, and and we will again, I'm sure. Yes, yes. Uh, anything else to talk about that? I guess. I guess in that vein, we've got to mention WeWork as one more thing. I hate to end on a negative, but <laughs> man, we can mention one more thing after that. WeWork uh, totally exploded as a you know office sharing. I, so it was, I think imploded is maybe more appropriate term. Exploded in both directions, um, but essentially they were like, well, we're kind of the Uber for offices, right? So now they can be valued like a tech company, but it turns out it's just a real estate rental company and those get valued at more reasonable valuations for a variety <laughs> of reasons because they don't scale as well. WeWorks are still nice places. I've been in them. It's just that the company doesn't do well. So where is all this going? Which one of these trends do you think w- would you watch the most closely to be most consequential? Oh, de- definitely, uh, I'm most interested in keeping an eye on the, the political angle and not not necessarily politics per se, but but the you know kind of the the Arab Spring and the Green Wave and uh, how technology and has influenced things like that and Occupy uh, and and the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, what what the next uh, page in that story is going to be is is something I'm really keen to learn more about. Cool. Yeah. Uh, for me. You probably could guess I'm going to say it's crypto. I think that stuff's just moving so fast, and it's so unpredictable where it's going to go. Uh, but one thing's for sure, it's here for good, and um, it's only gaining in usage and popularity. And what the effect of that is going to be is just um, is just so uh, so interesting. And we're going to get to see that over the next few years, over the next 10 years, really. I mean, oh, can, can I have a bonus item? Yeah, sure. Um, space. The Ooh. stuff that's going on in commercial space right now is fascinating. Uh, and the, the next decade is going to be very different. I saw Metaculus. They think there's like better than even chance that someone lands on Mars in the next decade? Well, if, if we can stick to the very aggressive agenda that, that Vice President Pence is pushing, we're going to be back on the moon in 2024. Hmm. And I guess Mars will just be Elon Musk's thing. Well, I, I think the the plan is once we've got to to the moon, then we start bootstrapping to Mars. Well, uh, that will... I, I don't know how reasonable yeah. 2024 is, and and how quickly we can bootstrap off that. But... Yeah, it seems like if if you have moon in 2024, Mars is still going to be 10 years away from that. But anyway, even landing on the moon again will be exciting, and so. We will be here on the local maximum to talk about space and all of these issues. That's one of the exciting things about the change in decade because I think some of these things are not going to be stories anymore. The biggest one, social media consolidation. No, we're not going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about space. Cloud computing, we're not going to be talking about that so much. We're going to be talking about crypto and decentralization. 
AI is such a broad thing that we'll still be talking about it, but uh, the form it comes in is going to shift. So I just want everyone to be aware of all of these trends and um, keep listening to Local Maximum because we're going to be following these trends. And we're going to be giving you the <laughs> best information in the industry on this. So uh, let's call it a decade, and I will see you next week at episode 100. Sounds good. All right. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.